Don't wanna know much about history. Hello everybody and welcome to The Conversation, I'm David Schuster. Have you heard what is going on in Texas? The Texas State Senate, which is dominated by Republicans, just passed a bill that eliminates the requirement that public schools teach that the Ku Klux Klan is morally wrong. In other words, the schools can no longer teach that it's morally wrong. What is going on in Texas? Joining us is Charles Coleman Jr., he's a distinguished civil rights attorney, also the pride of Howard University. Charles, thanks for doing this. What is going on in the Lone Star State? Well, first of all, David, thank you for having me, I appreciate it. Uh, what we are seeing happen in Texas is a reflection of what we have seen and unfortunately what I expect us to continue to see through state houses throughout the country. And what that is, is this rejection of, as you said, history, a rejection of fact. This is rooted in the critical race theory boogeyman, where people have decided that instead of having honest conversations about America's history, we would rather whitewash or white splain. And yes, there is an intentional pun in doing that. The sordid legacy of America's missteps as it relates to race, culture, and people of different ethnic backgrounds. And this is an example of that. It is not just with the Ku Klux Klan, it is with the writings of Martin Luther King, it is with the history of Cesar Chavez, it is with Susan B. Anthony, a number of different things that really speak to the fabric of who America is morally have been able to be sort of curtailed under the rug. And it's important that viewers understand two things. Teachers aren't prohibited from teaching it, they just aren't required. But here's the thing to anyone who wants to make that argument to say, well, a teacher can still teach it. If a parent, it can be one parent, if a parent objects to certain material being taught, because it makes them uncomfortable along the lines of identity or some other dimension of what we're talking about. That teacher is not then allowed to teach it. So it can effectively be blocked by one parent. So for anyone who is listening or watching and thinks, well, it's not a requirement, that doesn't mean it's a prohibition. It is a virtual license to prohibit, to, to prohibit based off of the actions or feelings of one parent. So you could have one parent who's a bigot and decides, I don't want my kid learning about this, or who's unsure and, and it stops the whole train. Whether it's the KKK or Martin Luther King or Native Americans or women's suffrage, what is it that these right wingers are so afraid of? I mean, nobody is saying, hey, if you learn about the injustices and the horrificness of slavery that somehow white people now want to enslave black people. Nobody's saying that I'm a white person, I therefore must be racist. But what's wrong with learning about the past? I think everything that you've just posited raises the million dollar question. What are you afraid of? And I think that when you begin to explore and unpack what this actually looks like and sound like, sounds like what you understand is that this is an inherent uh, uh, sort of pulling up of the skirt in terms of America's sordid history in this space. And this is very, very telling because at the end of the day, you can't on one hand from a place of integrity posit that America is this great nation, uh, this wonderful tapestry of diversity, but then be ashamed of telling the truth about how it is that we got to this place. So for example, any uh, championship basketball team, any legacy or dynasty in sports has to be authentic and honest about the fact that at one point we sucked. We weren't always winning, we weren't always on top. 
We had to get better. We had to go through a bunch of losses. We had to get embarrassed a couple of times before we got to the point that our culture changed, before we got to the point that we built a winning and championship bloodline and whatever it is that we're talking about. That is not something that America, particularly on the right, has really mastered. We want to sort of say, well, America has come out of this diversity or this adversity and these sort of periods of, of moral turpitude without actually going into what they were, without actually talking about it. And so for me, from an integrity standpoint, it raises the question of, do you realize that you're telling on yourself? Because that's what you're doing. You're basically saying that, you know, because for me, if you, if you really are as great and are as amazing as you 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 posit to the rest of the world and to yourselves, you can be honest about the history there. And the fact that you are seeking so ardently to cover it up is very, very demonstrative in my opinion of the fact that you're actually not comfortable with it in a way that you know you've moved beyond it, right? Like, so if you know that you've moved beyond where you were, you can comfortably say, this is where I used to be. And I've gotten better, and this is where I am now. But I was yeah. gonna say, speaking of comfort, I mean, I was just talking with a friend of mine who's a professor of a post World War II German history, and he pointed out that in Germany, which you know, a lot of Germans are still very proud to be German, proud of what where they are in society, but they're also proud to teach the evil history of Nazism and Adolf Hitler in every school, and they see it as being compatible that because they're taking ownership for what their ancestors did that enables them to be more proud of where they are now. Why is it that in America, we can't go in that direction? Well, I think part of it is, you know, some people just aren't comfortable accepting that times are changed and they truly are different. I think people are much more comfortable in a space where this is performative in nature and not in actuality. And the more that you talk about this, it poses the question of, well, what are you actually going to do? A year ago, we saw, David, a huge racial reckoning across the country in the wake of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and a number of different acts of violence committed by police against citizens. And there was this huge conversation about where we wanted to go as a country. A lot of people were in that conversation because they felt like if they weren't at the time, they were gonna catch flat, but they weren't really actually invested. Conversations like the ones we're having around critical race theory, around teaching the truth about American history, what they do is they push people in spaces where they have to actually do something. And that's uncomfortable for a lot of folks who would rather stay and sit back and enjoy their privilege. And so a lot of what you're seeing is the resistance to change or actual acknowledgement of change by people who have been comfortable floating by and resting and being performative allies, if that at all. How much of this do you see as being politics? In other words, simply an effort by Republicans to create a wedge issue, the traditional black white wedge issue in order to somehow, I don't know, energize white people into supporting Republicans to say, hey, white people join our party because we're not gonna let them call us racist. How much of this is purely driven by politics? I think there's a significant portion of it that comes from a revamped Southern strategy. I think that without Donald Trump in the conversation, there there creates this sort of landscape of where are where's the room for us to attract 
the votes of extreme voters, of people who aren't necessarily going to accept moderate politics. Um, but you know, can't but we can't go as far perhaps as Donald Trump. But where are we going to be able to galvanize the radical right uh, in the wake of of that absence? Um, for voters who are not going to lean moderate, but who otherwise may not come out to the polls. So now you have created sort of a lightning rod in terms of a conversation or a sticking point or a line in the sand that can get people energized and say, oh, they're representing my interests. In the, in the absence of a Donald Trump and his extreme politics, there's still someone who's really looking out for me and now I can align myself with them. So I think that there is a voice there that they are catering to, uh, and that there is a, a, a pretty fair amount of, of politics that's driving this movement across the country to basically create an issue when there should not be an issue. And there is an issue in so many school boards now, in the in particular town that I'm in, in Fairfield County. Everybody in this town received a pamphlet about a week ago castigating the school board, suggesting that the curriculum was now going to include critical race theory. It was a pretty slick pamphlet, I must say. But for those of us who are so outraged by this attempt to try to tell the school board, no, you can't teach certain things, what should we do about it? What can we do about it? The first thing is that, you know, Folks have to arm themselves with information. We have treated critical race theory as though it is some sort of boogeyman in a dashiki coming to yell at white people and tell them how terrible they are. It's no such thing. I mean, I think part of the problem is if you understood what we're talking about with respect to critical race theory, the average person who's even remotely reasonable might say, well, I don't see what's so bad about that. But part of the problem is that the framing has been so skewed and wrong and manipulated that by the time that it gets to the point of a vote, most people are saying, no, no, I don't want that. So I think that beyond just generally being engaged with your school board and being active, the biggest thing that we can do as a people, as a community is to inform ourselves properly about what these things are and what they mean. Yeah, I mean, to me, look, a deeper understanding, a deeper examination and understanding and appreciation of what slavery did to the United States, to black and white people. To me, that seems like that would be helpful to all students, regardless of your race, regardless of your background and ethnicity. So I'm not quite sure I get where some of these folks are coming from. But in any case, Charles, inspired by you, the school board here in Fairfield County is gonna hear from one David Schuster and the rest of his family, and they're gonna hear very loudly. Charles Coleman is a Charles Coleman Jr., civil rights attorney. He's got two degrees from Howard University. That's the, the t-shirt that they're very proud for him to wear. Charles, thanks so much for doing this. We appreciate it and good luck to you. We'll be in touch. Thanks for having me, always a pleasure. It. How about a third political party? Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. As anybody who's been following politics knows, there is a deep divide right now, right now among Republicans between those who support Donald Trump and what he has done to the GOP and those who detest Donald Trump but still maintain that they are centrist to, to right conservatives. Well, there's an effort by some Democrats to try to provide a new home for them. It's called the Welcome Party and the founders of the Welcome Party join us now. Lauren Harper and Liam Kerr are on the program. Lauren, first to you, explain what was the idea behind the Welcome Party and what do you envision? Right, well, we're not trying to create a third party. We're trying to make a big tent Democratic Party, right? So we started last year for the 2020 Democratic primary in the early states of New Hampshire and South Carolina, my home state, South Carolina. And we did um, GOTV for independent um, voters to participate in this Democratic primary. Um, we wanted to make sure that they realized that they could participate in this primary, first of all, and that they could have a voice in the Democratic Party in selecting our next presidential nominee. 
And so Liam, is it very focused specifically on people who are say registered Republicans or specifically might be moderate Republicans? So the focus is anyone who may not feel welcome in our party. Uh, and as Democrats, we wanna be the welcoming people um, in many different ways. And unfortunately, we know that's not how we're perceived by too many independents and too many potentially winnable Republicans who could come over. And we saw in the 2020 primary, you know, candidates like Joe Biden um, and you know, Pete Buttigieg explicitly saying, we need to create future former Republicans. Uh, and it was clear that there is energy there and we need to build stronger on ramps to bring them into the Democratic Party. I want to ask you both about some issues because there are a lot of progressives who sometimes feel not so welcome in the in the Democratic Party as well. Some key Democratic issues. Do you support the people who you're going after support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour? Lauren. Well, we we support ideologies across the spectrum, right? Like we we just did an op-ed recently um, about Senator Joe Manchin and his stance on the Voting Rights Act, trying to make sure that people understand that whatever shade of blue you are, you should be able to find a home in the Democratic Party. So whether you are um, ideologically more left or more left of center, you should be able to find a home in the Democratic Party, run as a Democrat, vote Democrat, and feel embraced by the Democratic Party that is being put out right now. But Liam, shouldn't the Democratic Party stand for, regardless of whether you're a progressive or whether you're a Trump Republican, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour for all the reasons that Democrats have been putting forward for the last many years? Yeah, Republicans have been winning and winning beyond where they should be because of their stances on unpopular, unjust issues like the minimum wage. And they've been winning because they have been focused on playing by the rules of the current game and winning. And the litmus test game is advantage Republican. They know how to play that game. It's been interesting as we've been going out and reaching you know, across the proverbial aisle to try to keep that majority that can prevent a speaker Trump after 2022. We've been hearing from some Republicans who say you don't know how to win. And that's a frustration for them. And we need to win. Our democracy depends on it. People on minimum wage depend on it. Well, I agree with you that Democrats need to win, but there's an argument that the reason that Republicans have been winning is because they don't have integrity, because they lie, because they mislead people about whether it's the vaccine or they mislead people about the election results or about climate change. At a certain point, though, Democrats don't don't they need to protect integrity and honesty in what you're saying to voters, Lauren? Oh, absolutely. There, there's no refuting the fact that we're trying to not be a party of integrity. It's a matter of what's coming at what's at stake, right? Like I said, I'm from South Carolina, and when we have a GOP-controlled state legislature and even our congressional seats, things happen in South Carolina that don't necessarily happen in other places that are safe blue states, right? You know, our state legislature just approved the firing squad to be a method of capital punishment in our state, and that probably would not have happened if we had more Democratic seats in the House and in the Senate. Those things are at stake for people in South Carolina and other red states where running as a Democrat, you're probably going to have to be more left of center versus far left to, to win. But to, in order to have those seats, in order to keep those seats, and even in Senator Joe Manchin's case, you have to have a spectrum, an ideological spectrum that is able to cater to the electorate that is from your state. Well, speaking of catering, give us a message, Lauren, specifically, whether it's somebody in South Carolina or another you know, red state that they are disillusioned with the GOP based on Trump, but maybe they like some conservative principles and maybe don't know much about progressive principles, but what is the message to try to attract them? You know, the message are, so my background's in local government. I used to work for Columbia Mayor Steve Benjamin. The message is really 
about the issues versus the partisan politics, right? I think what we saw last year was the fact that Republicans went on to the divisive rhetoric and it stuck. In South Carolina, you said defund the police, you said Nancy Pelosi, and it automatically got you Republican votes, right? So the messages in South Carolina are much more on the what is actually not dividing us and what is actually going to progress us forward as people. You know, people need healthcare, people need jobs, people need safe communities, right? So the messages that are actually going to cater to everyone, things that people all, all people care about when you make a list of things that people care about and they all agree on, those are the things that are going to pass and those are the things that are going to get people and candidates excited about, voters excited about candidates. Liam, you guys mentioned this, uh, this op-ed about uh, Joe Manchin. Do you consider Joe Manchin to be a success, to be a model? Or is he someone who's essentially the antithesis of what Democrats stand for because of his efforts and also Christian cinemas to essentially gum up democratic legislation and bottle it up. Yeah, Harry Anton at CNN answered that question. He is a miracle. Joe Manchin is not just a bonus for Democrats, he is an electoral miracle. You have proof in Joe Manchin that a third of West Virginia voters will split their vote, will vote for a Trump and then turn around and vote for a Joe Manchin. And, you know, Democrats, your viewers, progressives, people who don't feel at home on the left, people who don't feel at home on the center or center right, they're usually people of science and we're the party of science. And that also means political science. And when you look at the political science, it's very clear. You need to reach out and bring people in, especially when you're the liberal party. It's just math. Only 25% of Americans identify as liberal. And so when we have a majority of the country, that means less than half our party will be liberal. And that might not be as fun as we'd like it to be, but it's the reality, it's science, and we gotta live in that world. Liam, what about the argument that one of the reasons Democrats are not doing better with centrists and not attracting more Republicans is because Democrats all too often are like the Republican establishment, beholden to Wall Street, protective of corporate interests, exactly like Joe Manchin, as opposed to the Democratic Party defining itself more towards raising the minimum wage, tackling climate change, eliminating student debt, reigning in Wall Street. Wouldn't that be a better differentiator for the Democrats to say, look, we're not the party of Wall Street. We're not the party of corporate greed and corporate power. Wouldn't that be a better model? Well, I mean, that's a great way to get a lot of retweets. But we found you know, winning on Twitter too often means losing at the ballot box. Um, you know, the, the Democratic nominee for mayor in New York put it well. Other candidates thought this was about social media and the people on there. This is about people on social security. And it's unfortunate uh, that, you know, we can't do things the way that we like, the way that we, you know, may deeply feel is the, the perfect way to go do things. But we have to live in this world, this reality world. And we have 30 seats where Trump got less than 57% of the vote. These are seats where Jared Golden would have won. A Jared Golden or Jason Kander level overperformance would have won. And Democrats did not field a candidate who ran a competitive election, who spent you know, even a million dollars, which is basically the floor to run a competitive election. So this question of are we fielding too many moderates in these places, there are dozens of seats where the Democratic Party is literally not running a competitive election. There's not too much reaching out, there's not enough. But how do you inspire people to participate in a midterm election that's in 2022? It's not a presidential. I mean, if you are more similar to Republicans than different from them. And you mentioned Social Security. I mean, Joe Manchin essentially stands in the way of 
expanding social security benefits. There's some talk that maybe Joe Manchin and other centrist Democrats wanna raise the retirement age, which seems like it's an anathema to what the Democratic Party stands for. How do you inspire people who do care so much about social security when you say, oh, be like Joe Manchin, be like these centrist Democrats, Lauren? You know, we, we have to look at what's important and what's at stake for people in particular states, right? When we go back to the ballot box, you're not just voting to vote for someone who's gonna represent your district in the US Congress. You're voting you're voting for someone who's gonna represent you in your neighborhood, right? In your city, in your county, in your state, right? So you're going after someone who is going to represent the interests that best align with where you stand ideologically and also what issues matter to you and the people around you, right? So when we can go based on what that is, I think that'll be better suited for people who are voting. And Liam, what are you hearing from the Democratic establishment about your efforts? I assume that they are supportive and helpful. How does this differ from DNC efforts to reach to centrist and independent voters? Yeah, so we're an entrepreneurial effort. You know, We launched as a group of individuals and we continue to be a group of individuals who are individual Democrats who feel deeply that we need to reach out. And this is not a top down strategy. I haven't been to DC in over a year and a half. Uh, you know, we live in in two different states, and we have supporters uh, and colleagues around the country. Uh, it's not a top down effort. This is going to have to be peer to peer, reaching out, going to people, and saying you are welcome in our party, uh, and together we can preserve our democracy and maybe not make things perfect, but we'll make some progress. And Lauren, how do you measure success? You measure success by winning. So those 30 seats, if it doesn't work, somebody could say, look, you know, it was a noble effort by the welcome party, but they came up short. If it does work and the welcome party helps move some of these seats in the Democratic column, that would be success, right? Right, absolutely. You're, we're making progress and trying to change people's thoughts, patterns of beliefs and systems of beliefs. Lauren Harper and Liam Kerr, they are co-founders of the Welcome Party. It's an interesting effort and I wish you the best of luck. We will certainly be following this and thanks for joining us on the conversation, we appreciate it. Absolutely, thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of our show. On behalf of Asher Cofield and the rest of the gang at TYT and The Conversation, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.